We're now pleased to once again call upon our brother Colin Hollenby to give us the second class on the second chapter of James entitled, And the Scripture Was Fulfilled. Brother Colin. Well, brothers and sisters, we have perused some of the aspects of James chapter 1. We would just like to make a couple of connections out of James chapter 1 that will help us to come into the second chapter. We progress down to about verse 17 where we became very impressed with the fact that God only gives good gifts. He is a singular person with a singular intention and therefore because God is good, no good gift or perfect gift could come anywhere from anywhere else than from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And it is therefore fit that James should proceed in chapter 1 by showing that it is God himself who has called us to the hope of singularity. It was not our will, it was his will, says James in verse 18. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And that really does diminish us it takes man right out of the picture. It's telling us that it is God's purpose, that it is God who initiates the purpose, it is God who continues to work upon that purpose, and it is God who brings it to a fruition. Therefore, man is completely relieved of any glory that is involved in that process. The whole process is to the glory of God not to the exaltation of the man or of the flesh in any way. It will only be done by the abasement of the flesh. So it is God's book, it is God's ideas that we take into our mind when we read this book. It is therefore God thinking in us. And, re and actions, brethren and sisters, are no more than thoughts in rehearsal. That's why James can conclude so positively in chapter 2 when he says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. If there are no works, there is no faith. And it won't matter what a man says, there's no life in him. It won't matter how much he believes a statement of faith or says he does. It will not how much he knows about the word of God or says he does. <clears throat> if the tree does not bear the right fruit, the tree is evil. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees of his day. That's what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees of his day. They looked tremendously religious, but God said they were a generation of vipers because they only thought like a serpent. They only had animal ideas. And although those animal ideas seemed to be religious ones, they were but animal ideas. That's the difference, brethren and sisters, between a God who has given wisdom because a person desires singular wisdom and a person who simply reads the Bible and says, well, I'm going to do what God says. There's nobody can do what God says. There's only God can do what God says. And it's only to the extent that this word enlivens our mind, opens our eyes by wisdom, 
that we can fall into the character of those people that are mentioned in James chapter 1 as enduring temptation because we've seen, we've had unveiled before our eyes the purpose of God. And the purpose of God is not to save us. That's not what the purpose of God is. If it was, God has been a miserable failure through the last 6,000 years. The purpose of God is to get us alongside of his thinking. And when he gets us alongside of his thinking, which is, brethren and sisters, the very hardest work that God has ever done, and we can prove that by just casting our minds back to the creative week, six days and what was done? Everything that we see upon this earth was made like it was made. Beautiful, glorious to behold, even now when it's under a curse. Six days. But how many years has God been working to bring forth a people that will glorify the earth? 6,000 so far. And the work is not finished yet. And if God just merely wanted to save the creature that he made, he would have done it in a flick of a finger. That's not what he's required. He wants us to get alongside of his thinking. And as Jesus says in John chapter 5, he says, this is the work of God, that they believe on him whom thou hast sent. And brethren and sisters, when we contrast the creative week with the next 6,000 years, we arrive at one conclusion, and that is that it is a lot harder to get people to believe than to make a world. And it is. It is a lot harder. Because God has given to us the power of free will. He will not directly interfere with that. But he wants to interfere with it. He wants to fill it with the desire that he has got in mind. That's why he only gives wisdom to those who ask with single intention. They can see his purpose. So he goes on to say in verse 18 that the whole objective of God is to make us a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And if we are the first fruits of his creatures, then that really means that we, those who do indeed come to the state of wisdom and endure temptation to receive a crown of life, they will be the best thing that God develops out of all his work in creation and with the history of this world. That's the first fruits. That's what the objective of God is. And if we are going to do that, then we must be, as verse 24 says, rather we begin at verse 23, if we be a hearer of the word and not a doer, we are like to a man who looks at himself in a glass and he looks at himself carefully, he goes away, and he straightway forgets what manner of man he was. And isn't that like us? We look at the mirror in the morning when we get up, we prepare ourselves, and we see exactly what we are. And we walk away, and we're more handsome, we're more beautiful, we're more pretty, we're more anything than what we saw in that mirror. It's absolutely true, isn't it? We forget what manner of men we are. And that's what James is trying to tell us. Verse 25. 
Whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty, and that's a word, that's a little phrase that James uses in several different ways, the royal law, the perfect law of liberty, it doesn't just mean a section of God's word, it means the whole round of the counsel of God. When we look into that, there is a reflection that is seen. And that reflection, brethren and sisters, is not the reflection of man, but it is a reflection that needs to be superimposed on man. And it shows it both negatively and positively. It shows what a man is, and it shows what God wants him to be. So when the man looks at that perfect law of liberty and continues in that, he remembers what he saw in there, he's not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, that's the man that shall be blessed in his deed. And the acid test is given to us in verse 26 and 27. Now James could have picked <coughs> on many things to define the acid test, but he picks on the very thing, brethren and sisters, that is the acid test for all of us. Verse 27 particularly. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now if we were asked to define without knowing what James says, what is pure religion? We probably would have said just about anything but that. There's not even a word of God in there. God doesn't even appear in James's definition of what pure religion is. Neither does Jesus Christ. But of course they're very much involved because God is the God of the fatherless and the widow. He is the God of the stranger. He is the God who has called men to be separate from the world. So when we apply those tests to ourselves, simple practical tests, as James is always talking about practical things, he says, well, if you say you're a pure religionist, if your rebinding to God is pure, if it's single, if it's not alloyed, if it's undivided, you'll do what verse 27 says. You will show that you do believe that God gives for a singular purpose. And God is the God of the fatherless and of the widow. But then in chapter 2, we come to another test. Another putting to the test of whether we are right and single in our objectives in the sight of God. And that test is to do with how we treat one another. Or how we treat somebody who just walks into our meeting hall. We're unsuspecting. And so James says in chapter 2 and verse 1, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons? For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that wears the gay clothing, and say to him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, What's going on in your mind? Is there a singularity of intention in that mind? That's the issue, isn't it? Are we the sons and daughters of God in the way we treat people? Do we treat them equally? Do we not say that there is a man who is well-dressed sometimes 
and give him more credence than the person who is not so well dressed? Is that how we act? Well, James would say to us, we are people who have respect of persons. Now that's something that is very difficult to actually define in our mind. What really is, brethren and sisters, respect of persons? I don't know how many members there are in the Westerly Ecclesia. (coughs) There's not a great number. But even in the Westerly Ecclesia, you would become more attached to certain individuals than others. Is that respect of persons? We need to ask ourselves that question, don't we? What really is respect of persons? Well, respect of persons, brethren and sisters, is treating somebody with admiration because of present advantage. Because of present advantage. There are all different kinds of levels of minds in our ecclesial environment. And we will more readily have affinity with people who are at the same level. That doesn't mean to say, of course, that we will never mix with the people who are not the same level of us, whether they are above or below, or whatever it may be. But when we do get down to tin tacks, as we would say, the only thing you can really love about a person is their mind. There's nothing else will work for very long. And if there's not an affinity of mind, then there will be respect of persons. Because people will think that they will have some sort of an advantage by mixing with him or her or them or they. It doesn't happen that way in the truth. We must be like God. Why did he beget us? For one purpose. He beget us by the word of his truth. The word is single in its intention. So therefore, when we have mixtures among ourselves, there's got to be a singularity of purpose. We can't just mix with this one because we see that there might be some present advantage for us. And I'm not talking about, brethren and sisters, the ability of some brother in your meeting to be able to expound the word and to answer your difficulties about the word. That's got nothing to do with it whatsoever. If you're going to get an advantage out of that, you seek him out. James tells us about that and we're going to talk about that in chapter 3. That's not respect of persons. But when we come and look at the example that James has given, we do need to ask ourselves some questions about that. He talks about a rich man, somebody with a gold ring and goodly apparel, somebody on the other hand who only can afford what James describes as vile raiment and there would have been plenty of scope for that to happen in the days of James, far different to our own in that respect. How many ecclesial decisions are made upon the basis of some rich person's pocket? How many ecclesial decisions have been made upon the basis of, well, I'm just going to stick up for the person who's of low degree? We must be very, very careful how we judge. And verse 4 goes on to say in James chapter 2, if that's the way we treat one another, if that's the kind of mind that we have, If that's the way we exercise our judgments, verse 4, are ye not then partial in yourselves? And what's partial? It's not singular, is it? 
It's it's duplicity. Are ye not then double in yourselves and are become judges who judge because of evil intent? Might sound very, very harmless just because we may get some fleshly and personal advantage by taking the part of one or the other of those people. But we've used evil thoughts to arrive at our conclusions. So therefore, in the wisdom of God, verse 5, let us have a look at the calling of God, says James. He says, Hasn't God chosen the poor of this world who are rich in faith and they become heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? So therefore he is saying that if God was to do anything in the situation... God would almost certainly rather pick the poor. That's what verse 27 of chapter 1 is about, isn't it? That pure purity of religion and being undefiled before God is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And there is a hallmark, brothers and sisters, as to the way in which God always does what he does. He makes a judgment not on the basis of fleshly reasoning, but he goes in the opposite direction every way. And while we may be inclined very much to go side by side with the man with the gold ring and goodly or radiant and lustrous apparel, as the word means, God chooses the other course. He takes the poor of this world, rich in faith, so that they might become the heirs of the kingdom to them who he has promised it unto. And then verse 6, perhaps we would have to look at James's situation even more than we do our own today. <clears throat> but ye have despised the poor, says James. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? And it's very difficult to conclude as to whether James is just meaning rich men outside or whether he is actually talking about men inside the ecclesia as well. But the principle that he wants us to understand is very, very clear in verse 7 where he says that these men, these rich men who oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats, they blaspheme the worthy name by the which ye are called. Now what does that mean, to blaspheme the worthy name by the which ye have been called? Well, when we think about somebody calling another by their name, our minds probably go immediately to Acts chapter 15 and verse 14 where Peter says, or rather where Paul says, that God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. That's the objective of God, isn't it? To take out of them a people for his name. Therefore, the name... As we know in Matthew chapter 28 when a person becomes baptised they're baptised into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And when we think about it brethren and sisters there's only two kinds of people who have got the prerogative to pronounce their name upon somebody else. And one of them is a husband and the other one is a father. And Yahweh fulfils both of those roles doesn't he? Isaiah chapter 54 says that Yahweh, thy maker, is thy husband. 
And of course, he becomes our father when we become baptised into the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can see that what is being proposed in this verse by James is that there are people who have taken on the name of God. They have admitted that he is both a father and a husband to them, but they blaspheme the name into which they have been called. Therefore, they make a mockery, says James, of the things for which their husband and their father stands. They blaspheme, they vilify that name. And we can very easily do that in our daily life by not portraying an attitude and a mind that is one of pure religion. In either our distaste for the fatherless or the widows or keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. So then verse 8 says, If ye fulfil the royal law, it's the same as the perfect law of liberty back in chapter 1 and at verse 25. If we fulfil the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself, ye do well. Can we notice what James is doing there, brethren and sisters? I mean, if we were asked, what is the royal law, what would we say? Jesus was asked on one occasion, wasn't he? Which are the two great commandments? And what did he reply? He says, there's two great commandments. And the two great commandments are, thou shalt love Yahweh thy God with all thy heart, soul and mind, and to love thy neighbour as thyself. But James excludes the first one. He says, If ye fulfil the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself, ye do well. Is he inverting the order? Is he forgetting about what Christ said? Is he forgetting about Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4? Well, of course he's not. But he is showing to us that a person who does love God with all his heart, soul and mind, it will be seen in the action of loving his neighbour as himself. So although he seems to have left out something or at the very least inverting the order, he's not doing that. He's given prominence to God in chapter 1. He's told us what God is like and he said that we ought to be the children of our father. And to demonstrate that we are the children of our father, we love our neighbour as ourselves. But if we have respect to persons... If we look at people and only associate with them because we think there is some personal gain for ourselves, we commit sin. And we are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. And he's using the law of Moses, brethren and sisters, for a basis to establish a principle. And the principle is that you cannot cut up the laws of God. They're not little pieces. They all fit together as a harmonious and a perfectly wonderful whole. So that when you attack one part of that whole round of the commandments of God, you have in fact attacked the very basis of it. You have caused yourself to fall with respect to that whole law of God. There's no dividing it up. One part is altogether a part of the whole and they must be seen by us in that way and he goes on to explain that in verse 11 doesn't he 
And therefore, he says, we shall so speak and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. The same as the royal law in verse 8. And then in verse 13, he gives the reason why. He says, for he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. And he's asking by implication, where is the opening for the extension of mercy in the law of Moses? There was none. You're caught doing something, it's proved, you're stoned. There is no opening at all, brothers and sisters, for the forgiveness of sin under Moses' law. Because if you offended in just one little point, having kept all the rest of everything that was commanded in the law, if you fell short in one, that was enough to deserve death. Quite enough. And there was no forgiveness under the law because the blood of bulls and goats cannot be cannot take away sin. So then, how is the opening for mercy ever going to be granted? And then in verse 13, James answers that by setting up, as it were, a court scene. And he really uses a word in there that demonstrates that fact to us. That up there, holding the gavel, is the judge. And he's listening to the prosecution. And over on the other hand, we have the defendant in the dock. And the prosecuting is eliciting confessions out of the defendant so that the judge might make a judgment upon what happens. What about us, brethren and sisters, as we stand in that dock? Are we going to be guilty of one? Are we going to be guilty of breaking but one of the commandments of God? Of course we are. But then a voice comes from the body of the hall, as James perceives it. He says, mercy rejoiceth against judgment. And the word for rejoiceth really means to vaunt down, to cry down, to tear down. So that as the judge is, as it were, about to bring down his gavel, somebody in the, in the body of the court says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know this man. I know this person and I know that this person has looked after the fatherless and the widow. I know he's kept himself unspotted from the world. And though it is absolutely true that every single one of us, brethren and sisters, deserves judgment, the only way in which we can possibly build up a store of mercy is by having shown it. And the voice in the body of the hall is going to vaunt down the voice of the prosecutor as he said, this man is guilty, judge. We're all guilty. We'd all have to plead guilty to that. And when we come to such a situation, brethren and sisters, when we come to the judgment seat of Christ, there will not be made up a list of do's and don'ts and goods and evils. The judgment seat has really not got anything to do with that. The thing the judgment seat has got to do with the primary objective of that judgment seat is to get us to agree with God. And you just think what that will involve. You just think for a moment what that will involve. That will involve, in the case of David, the bringing forth 
of his sin with Bathsheba. You might say, well, wasn't that forgiven? Yes, it was forgiven. But it won't be brought to his attention, brethren and sisters, in the sense of him being accountable anymore for that. But what happens when we do what we do? Do we know the effect of that on our brethren and sisters? Do we know the effect of that on the people in the world who we're trying to teach the truth to? That's what we will answer for. And there won't be one thing, brethren and sisters, for which we have been forgiven when we're up there in the court, face to face with the judge of all the earth that is not able to be brought to our attention. He will want us to understand what happened as a result of that. And then there will be a real test of whether we can agree with God or not. That's what David said when he was judged. He said, look God, I know there's only one issue. Let's turn to it in in Psalm 51. Verse 2. Maybe we should read right from verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me truly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before thee. And now what does he say? Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And what does David say is the objective now? I want it to be, God, that you might be justified when you speak. And I want you to be absolutely clear of any suspicion of infidelity when you judge. That's what David said. Now that, brethren and sisters, is a very difficult plummet to uphold. For us to say to God, as David did, I want nothing else now than for God to be shown to be right and I don't want anybody to have the slightest suspicion about infidelity when God says what he says. That's going to be a very bitter pill for us to swallow. A very bitter pill indeed. And it's really the only issue that will be solved and resolved at the judgment seat as to whether we can listen to what God says. And you know that's true, brothers and sisters. We know there are parables that convey that. And if there is one thought in our mind that says, when did we not see the fatherless and the widow and didn't help them? What will be the answer? We know the answer. But when the king says, you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me, We know what that will mean too. Because there will be the poor and the fatherless and the widow. They will be crying into the ears of the judge to say, this man deserves mercy. Because he's built up a reservoir of it. And in that sense, and in that sense alone, brethren and sisters, we will be able to stand before the judge of all the earth. Because we will have built up a reservoir of mercy because our religion will have been seen to be pure and undefiled. That's why we'll get the mercy of God, not because we deserve it, because he who offends in one point is guilty of all. 
but the mercy of God shall be, shall be given because it vaunts itself up against judgment because there's been a reservoir of mercy built up. And then James enters into a discussion about faith and works. What can it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? We can go to a dozen places in the Bible where it tells us that faith saves us. But it's not the kind of faith that James is talking about. He's talking about faith which really is not faith. And it's only in a man who says he's got faith. Words are extremely cheap, brethren and sisters. We make a multitude of them every day. The wise man Solomon says, In the multitude of words there lacketh not sin. And we fall into the trap every single day of our lives. When we make promises and we say we're this and we say we're that and we say we're something else, they're all vain boasts. They're just words. The man who does never tells. That's what Jesus says. He says, if you want to do your arms, you don't let your left hand know what your right hand does. That's faith. People will see it, that's true. But the person did it for a singular intention. Not because they wanted other people to see it, but because they knew it was right. And they wanted to get themselves alongside of the God who can save. That's why they did it. Even so, he says, verse 16, after giving the illustration of one needing warmth and filling, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead. If it's alone, yea, a man may say, I have faith, or thou hast faith and I have works. You show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. So in verses 21 to 24, James gives to us an example of the faithful patriarch Abraham. It's a very interesting example that he gives there. Let's just dwell on that for a few moments, brothers and sisters, because the whole realm, the whole scriptural doctrine of reconciliation and of justification before God comes before our mind in this very short passage. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered up Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect and the scripture was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Now let's just go back to that statement brethren and sisters in Genesis chapter 15 and at verse 6. Here is where Abraham is declared to have been a man whose faith was counted to him for righteousness. And let's just set the scene of of Genesis chapter 15 because it is a period of time after which Abraham had been promised a son and his wife was barren and therefore it was impossible as far as human endeavours are concerned to have a son. So we know that they made the mistake of subsequently in chapter 16 looking at Sarah's handmaiden. 
her handmaid, the Egyptian Hagar. So if we can just try and picture ourselves in Abraham's state, an old man who every day must be getting further and further along the way to when to beget a son is impossible. And he's got a, he's got a wife who is barren. And then we read in verse 1 of Genesis 15 that after these things the word of Yahweh came unto Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord Yahweh, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? Now, brethren and sisters, that might seem fairly innocent to us, but can you see a connection in verse 2 with the promise that God had made to Abram that he would give him a son? The angel just simply comes to Abram and says, Look, don't fear, because I'm your shield and thy exceeding great reward. We can see what Abram's mind was thinking about. It was thinking about the promise of a son. What are you going to give me? I'm childless. How can you be my exceeding great reward when I haven't got a son to carry on the airship that you've promised? And so Abram said further, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This is not your heir, Eliezer is not your heir, but there shall one come forth out of thine own bowels, who shall be thine heir. And he's an old man, and his wife's barren. So the angel brought him forth abroad, and he said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Now he's a brother, brethren and sisters, who's aged, who's got a barren wife, and who is told that he's going to have a has son that's going to come out of his own bowels, and then he's taken outside and shown all the wonderful canopy of stars in the heaven, and he's told your seed is going to be as many as those stars. Now that wouldn't be easy to believe, but verse six says that he believed in Yahweh. He didn't just accept them as nice-sounding words. He said, by inference, I know that is true. And I know that the one who has promised it will make it come to pass for me. That's what Abraham said. Now you take that into our own life, brethren and sisters, and this is what it involves. There's a promise of life eternal in the kingdom. Do we believe it? that God can give it to us personally. We have no trouble believing in about the coming of the kingdom. But when it turns to us personally, we've got some difficulties, haven't we? Do we really believe that God will take us into the kingdom? We know the basis. Do we believe we will be able to get there? That's why God was so pleased with Abraham and he counted it to Abraham for righteousness. In other words, he was saying to Abraham, I know you're not righteous, Abraham, but because you believe that I can do what you can't do, then I'll look at you as a righteous man. But that was only something that was going on in Abraham's mind. 
What was he going to do about the generation of the seed? Was he going to be involved in the production of the seed? Well, not only was he going to be involved in the production of it, brothers and sisters, but he's going to be asked to kill it. To kill the seed. The very seed through whom the promises could alone come. Now how do we get on? Is our faith a match to our, to our imputed righteousness by our faith? Is that the kind of faith we have, brethren and sisters, that will take a life and crucify it? Because that's what purity of religion is, isn't it? It's crucifixion of the flesh. And if God has actually seen us when we came through the waters of baptism as a person who believes like Abraham believed that what he couldn't do, God would and could, our faith is imputed to us for righteousness. But then we've got the job of fulfilling the scripture. You see, brethren and sisters, Abraham had to fulfil that in the outworking of his life. God did not say, I know you've got an intention and I'll count that for the deed. God does not work like that. He says, I demand to see in that attitude of faith, I demand to see in that works that show that the faith is real and alive. We've never been asked to crucify our own son, to put the knife to him. But we have been told that we must crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts. We can't be respecters of persons. We can't be anything else than singular. And when James comes along and he analyses the typical slaying of Isaac, he says that's when the scripture of Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 was fulfilled. And if it's true, brethren and sisters, that when we pass into the waters of baptism, God has actually seen a mind of singularity there that believes that God can do what we cannot do and that he will do it for us personally as an individual. When we come to that conclusion, the word of God would be pronounced, wouldn't it? The word of God would be pronounced over such a person as one in whom God has imputed righteousness because of his faith. He's not righteous. Only Christ is righteous. We're not righteous. But we have righteousness imputed to us because of our faith. Now we're going to be put to the test as to whether we can fulfil that promise. That declaration that God makes over everyone who passes through the waters of baptism. How is it going to be seen in life? That's why James says in James chapter 2 that the scripture was fulfilled. You see, brethren and sisters, what that is saying is that Abraham proved that God was right. That's what that's saying. Because when the declaration came from the angel that Abraham's faith is accounted to him for righteousness... Abraham proved that what that angel said was right by offering up Isaac upon the altar. Did Abraham get us alongside of God in his life? Of course he did. He got right alongside of God. 
And he was therefore prepared to say, in whatever direction that took him, even to the slaying of the only son he had, through whom all the promises was going to come to pass, Abram simply said, I know God's right. And I know he'll do the right thing. And if it takes us, brethren and sisters, if our faith takes us into dark corridors like that, even to the slaying of our only son, are we going to fulfil the scripture? Are we going to fulfil the promise of God when he says, I treat that person as a righteous man? Are we going to fulfil that or aren't we? That's the issue. We've got to decide. And the darkness of those corridors, brethren and sisters, is really dark sometimes. How would we like to have to be asked to do what Abram was asked to do? We have just got to have the same kind of faith that Abraham had so that we can fulfil the scripture because we're called for the name of God. His name has been pronounced upon us. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to blaspheme that worthy name which has been called over us in the sense of husbandry and fatherhood? By no means. We're going to be, as verse 24 and verse 25 says of Rahab the harlot, see how that by faith, by works, a man is justified and not by faith only. And these two things, says James, in verse 22, seest thou how faith wrought with his works? He means that these two things are yoke fellows. These two things, faith and works, cannot be separated. They've got to be seen to be married together as a husband and a wife, if you like. They've got to